0: Well, good morning. It is great to have you here. I can't see most of you, but it's great to have you here. We, um, we have been without electricity since about 5 AM, I think. Some of uh, us have not had power at our homes either. Our, our 915 service we did outdoors, and it was nice and shady, but the sun was quickly coming to that area. So some uh, wise staff and volunteers quickly moved and set up all these chairs in the gym for us where I think it's a little bit cooler Um, but it is just great to have you here today thank you so much for coming I hope you got a bulletin on the way in because we don't have any PowerPoint slides uh, for you today but on the back of the bulletin there's an outline of today's message if that is helpful for you to follow always appreciate you filling out the ham here cards and do look over the upcoming events we have a lunch and learn with some missionaries next Sunday after the service And um, thank you again for being here. I want to mention up front that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. So if you did not get one of these uh, little prepackaged cups, oh my goodness, electricity backed off. Oh boy. Well, it was kind of fun not having it for a while. But anyway, we'll continue right here, right where we are. Boy, now I can see everybody back there. Wow, a lot of you came in since we started. Actually, a lot of you came in really late after the service started, I think. (laughs) It's good to have you here. Um, Communion today, we will celebrate. And then, as planned, we do have people prepared to pray with you and for you um, for any needs you might have uh, as we celebrate Communion. Well, this weekend is the time we celebrate the 4th of July. And... um, It's a time that I am particularly grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy as a nation, particularly the freedom of worship this morning. But I do have to say, like I expect many of you, um, I have concerns about our nation because the level of anger that I see in our country It seems that every issue becomes a politically polarized issue in our country, where it's the wearing of a mask or the taking of a vaccination. And um, I want to raise the question this morning. How can you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, live differently from the world around us in such a way that we demonstrate the peace of God that surpasses understanding in the midst of an angry nation? The one we serve, the Lord we follow, Jesus, is the Prince of Peace, the Prince of God's Shalom. And we who follow him should be reflecting his image, his character, in his likeness to the world around us. We should not be like the person who decided to showcase his attitude with a very large bumper sticker on the back of his truck. I pulled up behind him as he was turning left from 421, Boy, I hope it's nobody in the room here today. I poured up behind him, turning left on 421, right on Louisville Clemens Road. And uh, his his bumper sticker, and it was a large one, it said, Angry Christian. And there was a picture of a Bible on one side and a gun on the other. I really wanted to take a picture of it for a sermon illustration, but I didn't know which he had more handy, his Bible or his gun. I'm certainly not opposed to legal gun ownership and certainly not opposed to the Bible, but I don't think we Christians need to be showcasing anger as part of our witness to the world around us because Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So that's the question I'd like to raise this morning. How can you and I show God's peace in the midst of an angry world. I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter four. And again, without PowerPoint today, um, I hope those of you who have a Bible or your phone on your Bible can follow along in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians four is a most remarkable passage of scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians from a Roman prison. In chapters one, two, and three, the first half of the book lay out in the richest of terms what God has done for us, those of us who are in Christ. Then the second half of the book, chapters four, five, and six, tell us how to walk it out, how to live it out. So in chapter four, he's listing marks of spiritual maturity, how a believer lives in the midst of a world that's in darkness. How does he guide us to show God's peace to an angry world? I'd like to suggest seven ways that are found in this passage, Ephesians 4.15, to the end of the chapter and the beginning of chapter five. Number one, by speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 reads, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. One of the marks of a growing Christian is the ability to hold to God's truth. God's truth is revealed in his word as told us by jesus who said the scripture cannot be broken your word is truth god's truth is unchanging thy word the psalmist said is forever settled in heaven but our culture is rapidly changing now how do we hold to god's truth in the midst of a changing culture well by by holding his truth in hearts that are filled with love We live in a time when if someone disagrees with your view of some issue, you might well be branded a hater. But the scripture tells us we're to speak the truth in love. Maybe some of you, particularly some of you who are students, uh, have a friend, a guy or a girl that you see going down a pathway, perhaps a path of, of drug use that you know that you know is gonna lead to irreparable harm for them. But you're reluctant to speak to them because you don't want to offend them. And you think, well, doesn't the Bible say we're to be loving, we're to support people? And there are people who say, well, if you don't support my lifestyle, if you don't support what I'm doing, you're not loving. No, that's not true. There is a time that God's truth needs to be spoken to your friend and you can do it in a loving way. Speak the truth, speak the truth in love. One of the most unloving things I could do as a pastor would be to stand up here and tell you that God is approving of some lifestyle or some behavior as acceptable when I know God's Word says it's wrong. Believers hold to the unchanging truth of God's Word in the midst of a changing culture, but we do it in a way that conveys love. We do it with hearts filled with love. How do we show peace in the midst of an angry world? By speaking the truth in love. Secondly, by demonstrating by the way we live true righteousness and holiness. Paul, in this passage, is contrasting the way people live who don't know Jesus with the way we should live when we do know Jesus. And he writes in 417, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And Gentiles is broadly used for those outside the the family of God, the body of Christ. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Lost people will behave like lost people. But you rather, he says, put on the new self. The nature of Christ provided you, created, after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, you and I are to be going out into this world, regardless of others, what others do, the way they live, what they say, the level of their anger. We're to demonstrate the character of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Well, I'm glad we stayed here and didn't move to the sanctuary. Um, Let me ask you a question. Do you think the church, is significantly influencing the world around us in our day I don't all studies indicate that the church has lost its ability to speak to moral issues cultural issues we've lost our moral authority so to speak the church is not significantly influencing the world today because the church is not living very differently from the world Studies repeatedly show this, that those who claim the name of Christian don't live that differently from those who don't. But Paul says a mark of maturity, a way to bring God's light in the world is not only by speaking the truth in love, but by living it out in true righteousness and holiness. And again, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Number three, by speaking words, that communicate grace to others you know you can share a hard thing with someone else hard truth with your children with your parents with your siblings with your spouse with your friends with the culture at large if you do it from a grace-filled heart one of the marks of a mature believer is found in Ephesians 4:29. I think this verse provides the best guidance for our speech I know of in all the Bible And there's a lot of guidance in the Bible about our speech Paul writes this let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up that is good for edifying good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear consider those three criteria for your speech first of all or four if you say it's not corrupting but three in the positive sense number one well, by saying this, is it good for building up the person? It may be a hard word, maybe something challenging you need to say even to your spouse. Those of you who are married, maybe one of your good friends or your roommate, maybe a, be a hard word. But ultimately, you think it's in their best interest. It's for their building up. Number two, does it fit the occasion? Now. I know that those who are married have learned that there is a right time and a wrong time to bring up a hard issue. I have done that, I've brought, brought up the wrong thing and heard my wife say, this is not the right time to bring that up. Does it fit the occasion? Will it build up, does it fit the occasion? And thirdly, will it convey God's grace, Paul writes, that it may, your words, give grace to those who hear. Elsewhere to the Colossians in chapter four, verse six, he said, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. It's the mark of a mature believer. So the people you live with, the people you work with should notice a difference. The difference made by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within the follower of Jesus by your words, by the way you speak, by the things we say, by the things we don't say, the way we say them. Number four. How do we show God's peace to an angry world? By being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Right after telling us how to speak, how not to speak, and how to speak, Paul writes these words. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit within us, if we are yielded to his control, will guide us regarding our speech. If we are not yielded to his control, we may speak in such a way that actually grieves him. Think about that for a moment. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To me, it's difficult to fathom that a mere human being can grieve the omnipotent Holy Spirit of God. As Christians, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, but that does not mean we are necessarily under His control. We're called to be filled with the Spirit, which means to be yielded to Him, submissive to Him, under His authority. There are many times in life I've felt that there's something I shouldn't say but because I let my own reasoning or desire to look good or to reinforce a point I wanted to make overrule that, I spoke it and I've experienced grieving the Holy Spirit. I think I know what that is. Number five. How do we show God's peace to an angry world? By avoiding bitterness, anger, and slander. Immediately after saying do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Paul says, he writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Are you noticing how many of these marks of spiritual maturity have to do with the words that do or don't come out of our mouths? Highly significant all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all slander be put away. Clamor is the loud, clanging, argumentative stuff that we hear, we see on media before us. We see it on sometimes political ads, we see it sometimes showcased in protests on the streets. And let me just say this, we really should not expect the world to act differently. Lost people will act like lost people. The Apostle Paul has already said in this same passage that those without the knowledge of Christ who are darkened in their understanding are alienated from the life of God and they're gonna walk differently. That is to be expected. You and I who follow Jesus, his representatives in this world cannot and should not. Sometimes people ask when we talk about anger, but didn't Jesus get angry? Yes, he did, and his was a holy, righteous, and sinless anger. Jesus had no sin, so when he took a whip and drove money changers out of the temples, he was demonstrating a holy, sinless, and righteous anger. Now, I certainly cannot claim, when I get angry, that mine is holy, righteous, and sinless. I think it's tainted with my humanity, and that's why James writes in James chapter 1 and verse 19, everyone... Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteous purposes that God desires. There's a time to be angry at sin, certainly. There is such a thing as righteous anger we see in prophets, God's people. But take heed to James' words to be cautious in Paul's words to let all bitterness wrath anger and clamor and slander be put away from us. Number 6, how do we show God's peace in a divided, polarized, angry world? By kindness. Kindness. Paul writes in Ephesians 4:32, the very next verse, be kind. Be kind to one another. My mom tells me that the first verse I ever learned as a kid was that verse. Of course, I don't remember it. But we learned in Sunday school, in the old King James Version, the verse, be ye kind. And my parents were punishing me for something, and she said, you quoted that verse, be ye kind. (laughs) Now, there is a proper context for it. Parents should discipline their kids. But I do think kindness is the most underrated mark the single most underrated mark of a spirit-filled believer, a great Scottish preacher of years gone by, a revival leader named Andrew Bonar, said, you are not very holy if you're not very kind. You're not very holy if you're not very kind. Number seven, by imitating our Lord Jesus. Paul summarizes this passage as he comes to the end of chapter four and goes into chapter five and says, therefore, therefore be imitators of God, Imitate God, imitate the Lord Jesus as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I'll ask it again. When the world in this country sees the church, does the world see Jesus? Indian philosopher years ago said this. He said, Jesus is ideal and wonderful But you Christians, you are not like Him. Sadly convicting. But we can be, we should be, we're called to be, the Holy Spirit's given to us to be, God's Word is given to us to be like Christ. It's God's vision, it's God's will that we be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And if the church was to live that way, I think our impact would be greater. I want to conclude with some some somewhat personal thoughts about the kind of church in many ways, I think we are, but but I think we should aspire to be the kind of church here locally at River Oaks, we hope to be, and um, well. This comes largely out of the passage we just read. The kind of church I hope we'll be. Number one, a church where we do speak God's truth from hearts of love. I hope we will always be a, a church that knows that all scripture is inspired by God, that it is His word to us. As Jesus says, Thy word is truth. The scripture cannot be broken, it does not change. God's, God is unchanging. His, his word, His unchanging truth, Um, does not change in the midst of a changing culture. It's important for Christians in the time in which we live, when there's just a deluge of input coming from all around, that we do not change our theology to accommodate a changing culture. But we hold fast to God's word, but we do it in love. We do it in love. And parents, certainly this should be done in the home. Christ-centered homes, part of our vision as a local church. So number one, a church where we speak God's truth from hearts of love. Number two, the kind of church I hope will be a church where we honor God as creator of all and are pro-life for all of life. Now, I I, I looked at some words from the Declaration of Independence this week because it is the the weekend of the 4th of July, and... um, Though Thomas Jefferson, I, I don't think, was, was known for being a, a Christian necessarily, these words, I think, reflect a biblical truth. They're probably the best-known words in the Declaration, they read this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with a capital C, by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Twice in that sentence, there's a reference to God as our creator. All men are created equal, endowed by our capital C creator. Now, certainly, our nation, especially in those early days when there was slavery, was not living that out. But I do think God may have guided that particular wording, and we have certainly um, enjoyed a great liberty in this nation, for which I'm very, very grateful. But I do want to say something here. In light of the recent Supreme Court decision regarding Roe versus Wade, obviously abortion's been the forefront for all of us in the news and the media. Um, I'm sure it won't surprise you. I'm, I'm pro-life. Uh, scripture leads me that way. Belief in God as the creator leads me that way. Passages from Genesis 1 to Psalm 139 to Luke 1 guide me that way, and, and, and this is one of the issues about which our denomination, the EPC, actually takes a position there's a, a pro-life position paper on our website, epc.org. But having said this, um, there's a certain criticism that's been leveled at those of us who, who take this position, and the criticism is this, you all care about the unborn, you don't care about the born. And I have to say, as I've had the opportunity to observe our church for going on 24 years now, and been involved in... in uh, church life for longer than that, I don't believe I've ever met a true follower of Jesus who's only concerned about the unborn and not the born. Read an uh, editorial in the Winston-Salem Journal just this Friday that said, hypocrisy uh, is rampant in our society when people care more about the unborn than they do the lives of the born. Now, there may be some people like that. There may be somewhere. But honestly, I don't know any. I'll tell you what I see in our church, and it gives me the greatest joy. I see a church that is increasingly being poured out to serve the poor, the addicted, the afflicted, the hungry, the homeless, the incarcerated. I see people in our church foster parenting, adopting, tutoring students, I see people who are pro-life for all of life. In fact, 99.9% of our ministry is to the already born. I see people building beds and providing school supplies and backpacks and clothing. And I praise the Lord for you all because you really are an outreach focused church. The kind of church I hope will be is a church where people will see personal holiness in us but with great humility for our own failures. We have to always remember when we're tempted to be very, very angry at the world around us, that lost people will do what lost people will do. And we must remember where we would be without the grace of God. The Apostle Paul, who wrote all these passages about pursuing holiness and so forth, you know what he said about himself? He spoke of God's mercy and he said God showed mercy to me God showed mercy to sinners of whom I am the foremost I'm the chief Paul says I was the very worst but God chose to show his mercy to me as an example for those who would later believe on Jesus his Lord where would any one of us be if the grace of God had not touched us and turned us to Jesus where would I be if I had not had the, the, the many opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel and be taught and like, where would I be? How dare I live a life of condemnation and judgment of the world around me? I hope we'll be people who increasingly seek personal holiness but do it with hearts of humility for our own failures. Number four, I hope we'll be a church where we can love and pray for all people, even those who despise us. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, and bless those who curse you. I left that out. Bless them. Jesus did that on the cross, didn't he? When he was hanging there, nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Prayer is a marvelous thing. I I really believe when we get to heaven one day, those of us who know Jesus, when we're there, we're going to learn that prayer was far, 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 far more significant than we realized when we were on earth. Prayer not only God uses to, to do his work in the lives of others, but prayer does something in us and for us And when we pray for those who despise us or dislike us or persecute us, it protects our own hearts. It protects us from resentment, from bitterness, from hardness. Prayer softens our hearts. It makes us more like Christ. A church where we love and pray for all people, even those who despise us, I hope we'll be a church where our faith is not guided by a political persuasion, but guided by God's word. I hope we'll be the kind of church that's known by our kindness, by our generosity, by our care for others, especially the needy. I have to say, it was. It was such a joy to stand at the back of the sanctuary Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, and to walk back in the Noah's Ark area Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, and see so many of you adults and students serving young children, giving three of your nights in a row, and, uh, and some of you staying well beyond the time when it was over, pouring out yourselves for others that way. I feel the same way when I see so many of you going out in the community building bunk beds, serving the poor, tutoring. I hope we'll increasingly be a church that's known by our kindness, by our generosity. And I have to say, I think you all do that really, really well, I do. Finally, I hope we'll be the kind of church where we are compelled by the love of Jesus by the love of Christ, to share the message of the gospel with others. It is good to serve the needy and feed the hungry and clothe the naked. It is good. We we should always do that. But we cannot just do good works and leave people untaught and unprepared for the great eternity that looms before us. All people must hear and respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that Christ died for sinners once for all, the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous us to bring us to God. When he hung on that cross and shed his blood, he did it so we might be with him eternally. And our good works are wonderful, but people need the message of the gospel along with it. I pray we'll increasingly be a church that is compelled by the love of Jesus to share that message of the gospel. And that is what we celebrate this morning. We take communion. Reminder again, if you don't have one of these little cup packets and you'd like to take take communion, just raise your hand, keep it up a bit, and an usher will bring you some. Might need to raise it kinda high so they can see you, depending on where you are in the room. I see some in the back there, some hands up. Um, Parents often ask about their young children in communion. Um, We believe a a child should take communion when they really do have understanding of what it represents, uh, because it is significant and serious that it's not viewed as simply a a snack uh, during church, but there's comprehension of what it represents, and we pastors, elders, others are happy to help you along with that. Typically, that is when a child will have uh, been baptized or be ready to be baptized the Apostle Paul said, For I receive from the Lord what I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what you're doing if you take of the bread and juice. You're actually making a visible proclamation that by faith you have received the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross in your place. Paul then gives a warning that we should examine ourselves and not take of the bread or the juice unworthily. So I'd like to take a moment now to pray And let us examine ourselves and prepare to take the Lord's Supper in a manner that would be good and and right. Father, we come now in the name of our Lord Jesus. I pray for anyone here who has not genuinely put his or her faith in the saving work of Christ. That you would draw that one to yourself today. And that today would be the first day they take communion, understanding what it means and represents. And if that's you, perhaps you could simply pray a simple prayer and say, Lord, I believe you died to pay the price for my sins. I believe you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. Jesus, be my Savior and my Lord. And now, Father, so take a moment of silence. Prepare each of us to take communion in the right way. Guide us, Holy Spirit, if there's a sin we need to confess, to bring that into the light before you. Now, for those of you who'd like to partake, I'll give you a moment to open the bottom of the packet. The little wafer has a tendency to fall out, and we can take it together. The body of Christ given for you, and now the juice. The precious blood of Christ was shed for you who believe. We had told you that today we would have a special time of prayer in our services at the tables in the back of the sanctuary. <clears throat> and um, we could make it at the foosball tables there, but that's a little crowded with people there. Here's what I suggest, that all of our elders and all of our deacons who are here to pray with people could simply make your way into the coffee bar area and gather around the the coffee bar um, or that big table in the coffee bar, one of those two spots. If coffee's being made, you'll find your way to a quiet spot. I'll give you all a moment to get on back there so we have plenty of people to pray with you and for you, but maybe you need healing yourself, and the Bible does say pray one for another that you may be healed, and we believe in doing that. Maybe in this season, this COVID season, out of which we hope to be coming, you have struggled with ongoing depression, anxiety, anger, and you just need someone to pray with you and for you, and it would be our highest privilege to do that today. So as we begin worshiping, I'm going to ask those of you, just like somebody, to pray for you about one of those things, or maybe a need in your your family or a friend. To just make your way out there to the coffee bar, we're going to worship the Lord a little bit, and then I'll close the service in just a moment.